financial markets rigged against you? Well, let's find out. I'm gonna talk to Dr. Nomi Prince. She's one of the top financial experts in the world to give you a sense of her background. She's a managing director of Goldman Sachs, International Analytics Group's senior managing director at Bear Stearns in London, strategist at Lehman Brothers, analyst at Chase Manhattan Bank. Her latest book is Permanent Distortion, How Financial Markets Abandoned the Real Economy Forever. Her previous books are Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World, All the President's Bankers. It takes a pillage behind the bonuses, bailouts, and backroom deals from Washington to Wall Street. Others, uh, people's money, the corporate mugging of America. That one predicted uh, the 2008 financial collapse perfectly um, and won several awards. All right, uh, Nomi, great to have you back. Great to be back. Thanks so much. Uh, no problem. All right, so let's talk about permanent distortion. First, what does that mean? <laughs> that means that given what the Fed and other central banks have done since the financial crisis and in turbo mode since the pandemic, which is fabricate trillions and trillions of dollars that ultimately flooded the financial markets and did not get into the real economy in any way near the same measures. There is a permanent distortion between what the financial markets do, how they behave, how they are rigged and how they go up. And when they go down, it's all better than what the real economy gets from the standpoint of any of that capital. So there's a ton to discuss here. So let's start with, yeah, so why don't the markets go down when Russia threatens World War III and using nuclear weapons, a pandemic hits, etc. Normally in the old world, News like that affected the markets, and understandably so, because hey, well then you know if there's nuclear war, maybe we don't sell as much, right? So, and I'm not saying that they need to panic over anything, but it doesn't seem to have the same movements as it used to. So why is that? Well, that's right. So since the financial crisis, which was kind of part one of what became the permanent distortion, and I've written books on that in the past. But but the Federal Reserve and other central banks basically manufactured money, and the narrative, and there's a similar narrative going on to today. The narrative was that this money was created in order to help the real economy. We all know that banks were the institutions that basically trashed the real economy, and they trashed their own mechanisms. But they got the lion's share of the financial help for that. And the Federal Reserve has no cap in terms of how much money it can create. It has no regulations in terms of how it needs to follow that money. It doesn't put any type of responsibility on that money once it goes into the financial system. So as a result, the Fed, other central banks created a total of about $29 trillion worth of money in the years up to the pandemic after the financial crisis. And as a result, markets always knew, Wall Street always knew, private equity, hedge funds always knew that even when things were rocky, even if there would be a negative reaction for a day or a week or a month or even a few months, that at the end of the day, if the crisis got so bad that banks could go to the Fed or their central banks around the world, particularly the major ones, and say, look, we've got problems trusting each other. Things are breaking, we need some help. That the Federal Reserve and other central banks would create money. And in the wake of the pandemic, this the same story happened, except of course the pandemic and the economic disruptions were massive. And as a result, the overreaction of central banks was more massive. And so the Federal Reserve created another four and a half trillion dollars, but this time in a few months, not in several years. And that just gave this confidence to the markets. And that's why they shot up so quickly while everybody else was at home and afraid of what was gonna happen next. And people were out of jobs. And, and yes, the government created 
fiscal stimulus in the form of $600 uh, checks, in the form of you know unemployment, extra insurance, and so forth. But but relative to what the markets got and how it was hoovered into them through the Wall Street financial community, uh, the money that actual people got was was nothing. Um, and, and all of that, all of that's created this permanent distortion between the markets, their expectations, their their outside angel help, um, which are the central banks, even in periods um, where they might be wobbly relative to the real economy, um, which which really gets none of this. So uh, we've got to discuss how they create money, right? So whether it was the 29 trillion before the pandemic or the four and a half trillion afterwards, I mean, those are such gigantic numbers that people have trouble grasping what that was, including myself, by the way. And so that's why I want to talk to you for, for some time here. So let's take the four and a half trillion first. What does it mean to create four and a half trillion dollars? So, so what it means is kind of an electronic sleight of hand. What, what the Fed gets to do um, is, is effectively move money into the, the balances of, of the banks that are part of the Federal Reserve System. Your JP Morgan Chases, your Bank of Americans, your, your Wells Fargo's and so forth um, in different proportional amounts relative to how much those banks are holding um, of, of, of collateral of bonds that the Fed will receive in return for that money. So for example, if JP Morgan Chase is holding, I'm just gonna say a trillion dollars worth of treasury bonds and the Federal Reserve is saying, you know, we'll take those treasury bonds off your books and we'll give you a trillion dollars. Um, and JP Morgan Chase is like, okay, cool, here's my treasuries. And by the way, in that transaction, you're also gonna pay me interest on those treasuries that I just gave you. But that's just a little tiny bonus compared to the money that I can now use to extensively go through my bank. Uh, should be to uh, you know give personal loans or small business loans or, or sort of help consumers, but but it's not really. It goes into their trading desks, it goes into um, bets in the market, and it goes into share buybacks and all sorts of other things. So so ultimately, it's like I would say to you, Jen, um, you know, give me access to your bank account. I'm just gonna sort of like do a couple, you know keyboard sort of shifts here on, on, on my end. And, and you're gonna all of a sudden go to your account and you're gonna see more money in it. Um, and then just give me something in return that, you know, I'm never gonna ask, I'm, I'm never gonna ask for that money back basically. Um, and, and, and we'll call it cool. And, and they did this to the tune of a bit more than four and a half trillion dollars, just the Fed in the wake of the pandemic. The central banks around the world created another 11 or 12 trillion dollars during that period as well. So it wasn't just the Fed, but, but other central banks have very much copied what the Fed does when the Fed does it, whether it's creating money like that or whether it's um, reducing or raising rates, which is which is the other part of the sort of day job that central banks um, can do and have done over the years with respect to like the, the cost of money on, on, a, on a short term basis. Okay, we're gonna break this down one by one. So, so they're not giving the trillion dollars in that analogy or in that example um, to uh, JP Morgan Chase and saying just keep it. They are buying something, they're buying the treasury bonds. Okay, so now why does JP Morgan Chase wanna sell those? I mean, they bought them for a reason, right? And presumably they thought it was a good investment to begin with. But in that moment of panic, they wanna dump it on the Federal Reserve, why? Well, first of all, it's much better to have cash. Um, for for any of these institutions, because cash is freedom. Cash 
can be turned into other bets. And, and there's a relationship between banks um, anyway, whereby they, they have to keep a certain amount of um, collateral of, of a sort of high quality bonds anyway on their books. So it's not so much that they buy them as an investment, but they buy them in order to be able to do other risky things. And they get to say here, you know what, we do all these risky things. Uh, we create all these uh, you know, different kinds of derivatives and, and all sorts of um, different leverage transactions. We, we lend out to institutions that do the same thing and so forth. We're part of creating risk in the financial system. But as part of our, our bargain to be able to do that, we have to keep some safe stuff on our books and US treasuries, for example, are considered safe. Um, but JP Morgan Chase, for example, doesn't buy those treasuries as an investment. What happens is the government allocates when it borrows money, it issues these bonds and it pays interest in order to borrow the money that these bonds are worth. So what happens is JP Morgan and other major banks are called primary dealers, which just means that they get these treasuries from the government and they get to sell them on or not sell them on depending on what they feel like doing. So they're kind of middlemen, but they can also keep them. So, so what, it, what it comes down to is that they have this stuff anyway, but they're basically giving it to the Fed in return for cash and they never have to give the cash back. And cash is way freer. Um, and that's why it's, it zooms into markets, it zooms into buy box, it zooms into you know stock options for CEOs just, just far more quickly than it then could go say through the banking system into helping to finance the building of the real economy or you know or, or strengthening consumers in, in, in any sort of way in, in relative to that. So I wanna talk about both sides of that. What does the Federal Reserve eventually do with those bonds? Well, so at the moment they, they, they they keep them. So, so this is where the permanent distortion, the idea of permanent comes in. Um, for the most part, what they do is they keep those bonds, treasury bonds, mortgage bonds, other forms of bonds on their books. Um, and other central banks keep different kinds of bonds on, on their books, usually government bonds plus something else. Um, and and they, just, they just basically keep them there. It's like, a, it's like a placeholder, it's like a marker for the cash that they give to the financial system, which ultimately gets into the market. So the bonds don't really go away. The only thing that happens, and this is what the Fed has said they've been doing recently or they will do, is the Fed does something called a roll off. You know, so just like a snowball sort of rolling down a hill, sort of as it goes down, it gets its it gets its own momentum, but it's not like they're really creating new snowballs. They're not actually selling the bonds that they have. They're not asking for that money back. All they're doing is letting them basically mature. So if they hold a bond that's a five year bond for five years and it basically matures, all they're doing is not replacing it with another bond. And as a result, the size of everything that they own goes down a little bit because that bond is no longer in play. So they're not actually trying to sell. And that's kind of the key thing here. It's kind of like a permanent injection of cash. Um, and it's not just from the Federal Reserve, it's from all these other central banks into their financial systems. They're not trying uh, to sell the bonds that they have back or or anywhere. They're just they're just an extra buyer of debt. Okay, so uh, I want to take the money from the beginning and then follow it all the way through. So, is the first step uh, United States Congress authorizing Treasury bonds? And then the Treasury Department issuing them. So we actually start with a legal process. Hey, we're going to spend this much on defense and Medicare, etc. So we need the Treasury bonds to do that. Is that the first step? That's the first step. In that step, there is something called a cap for the amount of debt that the US 
government can borrow. Um, so the first step is actually Congress arguing about whether they should raise the cap um, because our debt has increased by so much. Our, our, our national debt has increased from $9 trillion, which happens to be the size of the Fed's book right now, but on, in 2007 to $31 trillion now. So, so what's happened along the way is yes, our budgets have grown. Um, our shortfalls in terms of taxes, in terms of you know, the productivity that basically pays into the country uh, has, has shrunk relative to the budgets. And as a result, you know, we, we've borrowed money. So yes, Congress raises the amount of money that we can borrow, and then the Treasury borrows that money in the form of bonds. And, and then those bonds are sold through the banks. So the Treasury borrows the money from the banks, and the banks charge interest for it, and they make money from it, correct? Well, the, 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 the Treasury borrows the money, yes, from the banks, and then whoever on land, you know, whoever the banks sell those bonds to effectively, who then own those treasury bonds, could be the banks, could be other customers of the banks, like other central banks, China, Japan, so forth. But yes, that, that, that's right. Okay, so then in this scenario after the pandemic, the banks take that trillion dollars that they have in, that they already gave to the government, they gave the trillion dollars to the government, and they have the bonds as a trillion plus because of the interest rate, right? They sell it to the Federal Reserve at a trillion plus whatever value that they put on it. Now the Federal Reserve has those bonds. And when it does, you're saying it eventually just lets them mature and gets the money back from the United States government. Do I have that right? That would be right, except for the, the, the banks don't pay for the bonds. They, 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 they get the bonds in, in, their, in their role of being the brokers to sell those bonds onwards. So that they're not actually, they're not paying, they're just kind of like the middle. They're the middle man. Middle. Okay, so yeah. and the people buying the bonds might be a consumer, it might be China, it might be a, a lot of different, and the, and the banks get the money for being the middlemen. Okay, fine, but when the Federal Reserve buys the trillion dollars worth of bonds, are they buying it, for, they can't, you're saying the banks don't own it, so they're, how come it's the money's going to the banks? Shouldn't it go to China or whoever else owns the actual bonds? Uh, it, it should, but that, that that's just not how it works because the, the, the accounting, is the money is because the Federal Reserve is basically so the bank to banker to the banks that the relationship, the accounting relationship is between the Federal Reserve and, and the banking system. It's not between the Federal Reserve and China. So it, it, the money goes into the financial system of that country first. And it's the same thing in other countries. So, so, so basically it's, it's going to, to the spot where it has the, the connection. So I, I, this Federal Reserve isn't gonna give money to China to get China's treasury bonds into the Federal Reserve's book. It's going to buy them effectively or give money to get them from the banking system that it's got jurisdiction over. But Nomi, that's now for the first time you've lost me a little bit. So let's take China out of the equation because it complicates it a little bit. And let's say Bob bought a trillion dollars worth of bonds because Private individuals can buy them, a lot of different folks can buy treasury bonds. So to make it simple, let's say Bob or Bob Incorporated bought a, a, a trillion dollars worth of treasury bonds. So why on God's green earth is the Federal Reserve not buying it from Bob, but buying it from JP Morgan Chase that was the middleman that doesn't even own the bonds? I, don't, I genuinely don't get it. Well, when I say middleman, JP Morgan isn't isn't buying the bonds, it's, it's receiving the bonds from the government in its role of either deciding to keep them or to sell them onward. It can do both, it can keep them or it can sell them on in its role as a dealer. 
If it keeps them, it's now on, on the books of JP Morgan, but they can't use those treasuries to turn them into cash unless they sell the treasuries. So now the Federal Reserve comes in and says, well, we'll give you cash and we'll take your treasuries. So they're like, okay, now they've effectively done a trade. But now the result of that trade is these banks and not Bob have this money that they can then use for other purposes. So, and, and so that, that's basically, it's a special role they have that, that allows that, that transaction, that deal to happen. But in that case, isn't JP Morgan Chase Bob because it just kept the bonds, they never sold it to Bob. And so they're, they're, they're not being used as, for their role as middlemen when the Federal Reserve is buying it. They're being used because they have the treasury bonds that they're transferring over to the Federal Reserve. Do I understand that right? Yes, that, that, that's right. But, but in that transaction, they're, they're still getting effectively the cash. I got you. So what if um, you know treasury bonds go up, they go down? Uh, and in the past, um, uh, the uh, Federal Reserve was buying toxic derivatives and swaps, etc., especially in the 2008 uh, uh, crisis. So now they weren't buying really safe U.S. Treasury bonds; they were buying really risky stuff that was junk, right? And so, and they weren't purely junk; they had some value. Um, right. But the banks got to keep sell it to them at basically the previous market value like almost pre-collapse, right? And then Treasury gets them at a lower value. And here's the part I've never understood. What happens if the Federal Reserve, quote unquote, loses money? Like, let's say they bought, whether it's the Treasury bonds or the the toxic derivatives, and they bought it for a trillion, and now all of a sudden it's only worth 900 billion. And so they lost $100 billion. Where do so they get that $100 billion? This is like a really, really, really good question because they, it doesn't matter. There, there is no accounting or accountability for which the Fed has to, has to in in any way report a loss on its book or or sort of be penalized for managing a book of of assets that that um, have losses in them. And actually, even Treasury bonds right now, with rates going up, the value right now, and of course at maturity, and these are ten year, twenty year also bonds as well. They're not just you know, one year, two year, and five year bonds, but they're, they're a collection of different different maturity bonds. So, so over years, they will return full value. Um, but in the meantime, when rates go up, why the Fed puts rates up, it has a negative effect on the prices of the bonds they're holding, and that's another way that they can basically be holding a loss. So they, they've held losses on toxic assets, yes. They've, they're holding losses on other mortgage assets that they, that they actually also bought in the, in the pandemic period. And they're also holding losses on a lot of the treasuries that they hold. So, so in effect, uh, the Fed is probably holding a good 10 to 15% loss that it doesn't really have to do anything about. Um, it, 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 there's, there's no penalty there. If anything, the penalty um, is that the value of treasury debt um, goes, the prices go down as, as rates go up, and the government has to effectively pay more interest on the new bonds that it issues, on the new money that it borrows, which increase government's debt, which create a possibility where things could slow down to an extent where the Fed creates well, the Fed creates more money to buy this debt from the government through the banking system, which is the triangle that that actually exists. And I don't mean to. It's 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 
it's it's a very bizarre process that that I I don't want to really lightly go over, but the Fed effectively has no accountability for what it buys and the value of what it buys. Okay, so in, that's in, in any legal form. So I'm going to get to that in a second. But just to be clear, you said they have about $9 trillion on their books now. And right. and they might be holding about a 10 to 15% loss. So that's only 900 to one, 900 billion to one and a half trillion dollars that the Federal Reserve might owe. Owe to who, no one knows. How would they pay it, no one knows. So that right. leads me back to under what authority do they have the money that they are Creating so, like for example, with the Treasury bonds, we're doing it under the authority of the United States government. I understand that. That's the American people have elected these representatives. They have said we are going to borrow this money. They've created the bonds. There's perfectly a legitimate legal authority for that. But when the Federal Reserve says, "I now have a trillion dollars, or nine trillion, or thirty-one trillion, and I will now buy your assets or your bonds," where the hell did they get that money? What is that? It's again. This this is like the very bizarre thing that that distorts our entire financial system, the markets, and and money relative to the economy. They 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 don't they don't get it. They they just literally um, electronically create an, an accounting entry into into the into the the relationship that they have, the book that they have between themselves and the banking system. All they literally do is 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 add. Um, it, it, it's almost that simple. The authority that they have to do this um, is that, first of all, Congress never questions it. Congress will argue every single year about whether or not and by how much they can raise the debt cap, by how much the Treasury can borrow to, to basically finance the country's movement in, in, in our budget, right? So they'll have these arguments about it. They will never have an argument about whether there should be a cap to how much the Fed should be able to effectively manifest. Uh, to to take debt off of the books of banks and 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 from a back end sort of way from the U.S. Treasury because these are Treasury bonds that are that are sitting on the Fed's books. It's a kind of like ultimately they do a deal amongst themselves uh, by way of the financial system, which is really bizarre. Um, in, in the 1913 Federal Reserve Act, um, there, there was nothing in there that said that the Fed had the ability um, to sort of create money. There was the ability to create stability. Um, in the markets by moving rates up and down. Um, there, there wasn't this idea that you could just manifest um, money. It wasn't really part of the act. And even their dual mandate um, that, that we've talked about more recently and, and sort of had Fed history, which came about in the 70s, to um, maintain what they consider to be full employment and price stability or, or low inflation, um, nothing in that has a cap or, or even discusses that there should be a cap um, to what they deem necessary to create. So it's a very gray area that no one wants to talk about. And the government doesn't want to really deal with it because um, the Fed's also a back end way for the government to continue um, to borrow money and to know that if it needs an extra buyer for, for its debt, US Treasury debt, um, the Fed will be that, that buyer ultimately. So just so we're clear, the Federal Reserve is just making it up. They there is no trillion dollars anywhere. There is no nine or thirty-one trillion dollars anywhere. They're just saying, and we have created it. They're almost like financial gods, and let there be money, right? And right. so, and they don't actually have that authority from the 1913 law that created the Federal Reserve. It's not elucidated in that law. So at some point along the line, some banker thought, why don't we pretend there's money? 
and then give it to each other. Okay, that of course then leads to the question of what the hell is the Federal Reserve? Who's running it? Under what auspices? Who are they? Yeah, so so the Federal Reserve, again, the name Federal, but but actually it's and, and located in the middle of Washington, D.C., um, the, the main Fed. There's, there's 12 banks to the Federal Reserve system that are located in New York and Richmond and Atlanta, San Francisco, 12 different areas in the United States. And ostensibly, they were created um, so that when and if there were a situation where the banks on Wall Street couldn't uh, lend to each other or to or or basically give deposits back to their holders um, if there was a crisis or panic on banks then at least there'd be somebody that would ensure that money would sort of flow through the country through all the regional fed banks and and all the smaller banks and and, and different states would, would be able to continue to function that was kind of the that's how it was sold um, but but in reality that those banks the members of the federal reserve system own shares in the Federal Reserve. So for example, that same bank, JP Morgan Chase, gets a 6% dividend. And this is actually in the act, in the original act. The banks that are members get a 6% dividend on their shares, and they have, it's been the same dividend since the Federal Reserve was created. So they're effectively the owners of the Federal Reserve. The only difference from owning the Federal Reserve and owning shares in a company is that they can't buy or sell or trade those shares. They're kind of like perma shares. But 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 the construction is is kind of like a corporation, um, and yet because they're they're one of their jobs, one of the things they can do is set um, interest rates or set set the the federal funds rate, which is what they've been doing. For example, that they've been uh, raising quite quite quickly over the last six seven months. Um, that is in their purview to cut rates or to increase rates to sort of loosen or tighten the the value of money in the system. Um, why that's needed? It's either them or the market or Wall Street. And so it's kind of like, is that the lesser of two evils? Well, right now, it's not clear that's the case. The people that run the Fed aren't elected by us, they're appointed by the president and then they're confirmed by the Senate. So there is that connection to government, that sort of political side. But ultimately, we can't fire them, we can't question them. They've got no accountability to the public, and yet they they really control a significant amount, actually and psychologically, of what happens in the financial system and, and therefore the economy. Nomi, last two things here. So when so the the banks own the Federal Reserve. The president appoints members of the Federal Reserve, including the chairman. They make the decisions on how to manifest money. That literally means make it up, right? But if they're making it up and the banks own them, that's just the government and the banks deciding, hey, why don't we give the banks a trillion dollars? Because they're just, it didn't come from anywhere. They're just making it up. Yes, I mean, if we go back to to how much they're making up, which is the main thing here, which is why the, the system's so permanently distorted. We're not, when I say permanent, it's because at the end of the day, the Fed's not about to sell nine trillion dollars worth of bonds into the markets. It'll let them mature in like decades. But like it's it, and so there can be some other bank crisis or other type of crisis where they manifest more money. So the reality is that this is sort of baked in now that that there is this. This this relationship that's been on steroids since the financial crisis. The, the whole the whole original four and a half trillion dollars that the Fed created was supposedly to help the real economy. In, in fact, um, 
as we know then it went into the banking system, it went into the markets. And that's why over the years after that, the markets did so well. And the real economy grew so slowly to on average, not at all, depending on how you look at the stats. And, and that's kind of what we're seeing now. Um, and so, yeah, this is this is it, it's a very bizarre, bizarre system, um, and it's more bizarre in the United States actually than than anywhere else because there's actually more of a there's a tighter connection in other countries um, actually between the government and their central bank than there is in the United States where we somehow have have taken the the financial community as as part of this triangle into yeah. the, into the. So one part of it is super clear: if you're the banks like J.P. Morgan Chase, Citibank, etc., and you quite literally own the Federal Reserve, of course you would do whatever is in your power to have them manifest money out of thin air and then give it to you, okay? Because even if they're buying assets, they're buying it at inflated prices and you're getting the cash, that's, a, that's two wins for you, right? You're getting to dump your assets, sometimes at, at Huge markups if they're toxic assets. So that's an right. enormous win that you are giving yourself through the Federal right. Reserve. But secondly, right. then you have cash, which you could then do new investments with. So that's another giant win. So I get the right. bank's motivation. They're like, um, these suckers, the American people have let us literally create money out of thin air and give it to ourselves. Right. So right. then the final question is, is there ever a reckoning? Right, so they've got nine trillion dollars on their books. We think ten to fifteen percent loss. Of course, that's a guess, right? Mm-hmm. But can they go to ninety trillion, nine hundred trillion? Can they lose twenty percent, twenty five percent? Since they're since the loss is never recognized and the money was made up in the first place, what in the world happens? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. I mean, they they own they own a significant percentage of of the treasury market, and and yes, again, there's no cap and there's no discussion about having cap to what they can create. So theoretically, they can they there's there's a boundary in that they 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 kind of have to stay within the confines of how big the treasury market is. But I would not have thought. And this is where the book came in, which I wrote. Basically, I started during the pandemic, and it was in July 2020 when when we when it had gone to to doubling of its book in in just a few months. Where I was like, wait a minute, the Fed really actually can create money with with no limit. In the financial crisis wake, it was sort of like a testing ground. It took a number of years to get up to the first four and a half million. It took a few months to get up to the second half during that pandemic period. So, so yeah, technically, the limitation is to have enough of the kinds of bonds that sort of are within the purview of the Fed that are related to government. Even the toxic assets they bought were related to mortgages that were related to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and you know, sort of government agencies. So, so as long as there's enough debt there that isn't being bought by someone else, technically the Fed can buy all of it, technically. If it deems or Wall Street deems or there is a crisis that's so immense, whatever the next one might look like to, to warrant that. There's, there's yeah. no legislative or legal kind of limitation. So I get it, like if they could buy it at 10 bucks and then sell it back five years later at you know 10 bucks or 11 bucks or whatever it is. And they have sold some assets at I think a profit. Again, I don't know what it means for the Federal Reserve to make a profit or a loss since all the money is, I mean, it sounds weird and wrong to say it's imaginary, but it kinda is. Kinda uh, is. Yeah, and so, so I, I get all of that, but 
wouldn't that create inflation because you've created an imaginary four and a half trillion dollars? So why are we having a nonsense conversation about anything else when the four and a half trillion dollars is so large that it would dwarf any other economic effect in terms of creating inflation? So, so the thing is this, that there's, there's two kinds of inflation. And this is where the narrative about inflation and, and how the Fed is supposedly you know, heroically coming in to save us from our own inflation, which, which to an extent they were involved in. But, but, but it's really important to note that there's, there's, there's really two kinds. There's financial asset inflation and then there's the inflation that, that, that occurs because of supply and demand, natural causes, geopolitical causes, a pipeline going down, sanctions happening in oil and just other things that, that do also cause inflation. The Fed was causing inflation of the markets way before anybody started talking about inflation. But, but they don't consider inflation of the markets, or you know, the markets sort of doubling in, in, in a short period of time or going up substantially, 450% in a very short period of time, albeit from a lower level because of a crisis, they, they don't consider that um, inflation worth paying attention to. They didn't start paying attention to inflation until other sources of inflation came into play, like in oil prices, like in food prices. Um, and, and that's when they, they started to say, all right, well, we need to sort of fight this because those kinds of inflations come into their CPI, come into the, the inflation number they actually have to pay attention to because it is in their um, sort of ethos to make sure that inflation stays at 2% and not at the 8.2, 8.3%. It is now for those things. Market inflation doesn't matter. Stock inflation doesn't matter. Housing prices didn't even really matter until other forms of inflation kicked up that, that major CPI, that main inflation number that they look at. Um, so yes, creating money causes inflation, um, but also the inflation they're trying to fight is caused by other things. But in the process, they're raising rates very quickly, which is ultimately hurting the real economy's borrowing power way more than it's hurting you know, financial assets. Okay. Uh, the two different types of inflation is is honestly confusing. So if they if there there was no Russian war and the oil price hadn't gone up because of that, etc., would we have not had inflation in consumer goods, even though the Fed printed four and a half trillion dollars? Well, we, we we would potentially not have when when the Fed first printed four and a half trillion dollars, um, albeit over a number of years, we had very low inflation. Um, the first time coming out of the financial crisis, um, because those other factors just weren't happening at the same time or having the same impact. We weren't going from closed down economies to open economies. We weren't going from supply chain disruptions to um, more demand all of a sudden. We didn't have um, the kind of oil stoppages um, and natural gas stoppages that, that Russia into the Ukraine created. So, so we, we just didn't happen to have those factors occurring at the same time that the Fed was creating money and pumping it into the system through the banking system and into the markets. It just didn't happen to coexist. What's happening now is that that, that fast extra four and a half trillion dollars they created in just a few months has created some infl you know, inflation in, in financial assets. But, but also at the same time, these other things have created inflation of other prices that consumers require, you know, goods of which consumers require. And that's pushed up the inflation number the Fed looks at. The Fed got away 
with creating inflation in financial assets, to put it a different way, in the wake of the financial crisis because other factors weren't also bearing down on, on things that people need and use. So this time that didn't happen. So this time the Fed kind of is shown to be um, you know, involved in trying to fight inflation. Whereas last time it didn't have to even pretend to try and do that because there wasn't inflation in these other in these other prices. So they inflamed inflation. They didn't necessarily create it and they did, it's not the sole reason for it, but it, it inflamed the situation we're in. Do I understand that right? They inflamed financial asset inflation, not oil and food and, and, and transportation inflation. So they inflamed a part of inflation, but not all of inflation. The reason we are even having the conversation now, I mean, not you and I, but just in general, it's conversation. People are feeling inflation in their in their pocketbooks, in their wallets, in their homes is because other forms of inflation have also perked up at the same time that are more visceral to like everybody's daily life than what's happening in the stock market. Yeah. The Fed inflated the stock market. The Fed inflated the housing market. The Fed didn't necessarily inflate oil and food. It's just that right now it's all happening at the same time. So, it, okay, I keep saying last things, but it's such an interesting topic and it's and I, this is helping to clear it up so much. So I'm just gonna stay on it for one more minute here. Um, so. Wouldn't it hurt the value of the dollar though, if you're printing four and a half trillion dollars? And and why has the dollar remained relatively stable in the as as now the Federal Reserve has ballooned up to nine trillion dollars in assets? Because at the same time that the Fed was creating assets, uh, creating money and, and and buying assets onto its book, buying debt onto its book, um, other central banks were doing the same thing in a, in a proportionate way to to their own economies. Um, among other things, among the fact that there was also there's still uncertainty in the world, um, and and in general, if there's a pandemic, if there's a geopolitical uh, crisis, um, the dollar tends to benefit simply because it's like the biggest currency in, in the world. It's it's the main reserve currency, meaning all central banks have to hold some amount of dollars. It's the main currency of trade. It's the main currency of the international banking system. So so when there's any form of uncertainty, um, the dollar gets gets the benefit. And when the Fed's raising rates first and more quickly than other central banks to, as they say, fight inflation, even though there's a lot of inflation they can't fight, um, what happens is that that further strengthens uh, the dollar, because it just means there's more money coming in underneath the dollar to support the dollar, um, and relative to other economies, uh, we we get we I, the dollar gets the benefit of that. And that. That's why the dollar has stayed so strong. Rates going up actually um, now helps the dollar. And when rates were low, when they created all that money, the dollar was helped because we were in a global pandemic crisis. So so the dollar's really been lifted by again two different things. But back to back, and there's been no really, there hasn't been a big interruption between when you know sort of the the ramifications of the pandemic stopped to when the Fed started raising rates, and so the dollar's basically just gotten both of the benefits of that relative to other countries. Okay, I get it. And then uh, I, I I swear last thing I think. <laughs> <It's> okay. <laughs> uh, so somebody listening to this uh, might say, well. Okay, they print money out of nowhere and they give it to the banks, but then you know they sell it and maybe they take a loss. But it doesn't look like the loss hurts us because it's just imaginary anyway. 
and the dollar's still hanging in there. And inflation, yeah, it's financial inflation, but it's not oil and it's not food. So what's the downside? And and a lot of the neoliberal establishment would say, yeah, that's why we do it. There is no downside. We just create imaginary money and everything's gonna be fine. So at what point could this go wrong? And and what would that scenario look like? Well, it, it would go wrong where you know the, the Fed or central banks can't create money fast enough to to basically front run a crisis, um, whatever a new kind of crisis might look like. It can go wrong when, um, and I think we will have a consumer debt uh, crisis of, of some magnitude because people are having to um, finance things like their electricity bills with credit cards, for which the rates have gone up very quickly. Um, they've completely depleted our, we, we, our, our savings rates as a nation have basically fallen off a cliff in the last few months. And so what's happening is, um, American citizens and citizens around the world, consumers are being squeezed on, on both sides. Prices are rising. Um, the cost of borrowing to meet necessary demands is rising. Um, and it's all kind of happening at the same time. Um, and, and raising those rates supposedly is, is, is to dampen you know, the inflation of, of, of food, electricity, fuel, etc. But it's not really having that. Um, yeah, it's not doing that, and so that that that's a problem to consumers, and that could mean um, there could be a lot of defaults, delinquencies, potential foreclosures. I mean, there's a lot of credit problems that that, that can be a very negative effect to this this up and down movement of creating money, and then oh, oh wait, we need to sort of decreate it, or we need to raise rates, but we're still having uh, you know this money on offer to the financial system, so ultimately the markets will be okay. Um, as banks just were, bank earnings just recently show that banks are effectively able. To, to pass on you know higher interest rates to, to consumers that, that need to borrow personal loans or auto loans or whatever, um, where they're not giving money to savings rates at the same level. Plus people don't even have money in savings accounts to get a higher rates as a right. result of. Um, so, 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 so that's the problem. The other, the, and they magnify that to the world, right? The world is in um, record debt. It has been for some time, but now a lot of um, emerging market countries, developing countries have had to borrow in, in dollars. A lot of corporations around the world have had to borrow in dollars because that's again the prevalent international currency in the world. And now the cost of repaying that debt has to effectively make up the difference between their currency relative to the dollar, where the dollar is the stronger currency. So you need more of them to, to make up a dollar. And their economies are starting to slow down because everything's kind of getting at a breaking point, which means that you got slowing economies around the world. You, you have more debt around the world. And the, the cost of that debt is getting higher and higher. That creates a lot of instability um, economically throughout the world. So, so, so that's why it's, it's, it's all quite bad. Um, because on, on, on the side of all the, all the swoosh of creation, um, you create this distorted effect. Um, which isn't really there, and and you know central banks say well it's to help or this or that, but there's no there's no real restraint in terms of of how or why or what's the exit plan, um, and then the real economy ultimately winds up paying the price as as literally is happening right now. So I get that the consumers get squeezed on on all sides. They got the inflation, they got the higher interest rate now, and the debt that they owe, and we they live more under corporate rule, and they're more indentured servants, etc. I understand all that. I just don't get when they blow up because when the system blows up because this is clearly a Ponzi scheme. If we're being honest, okay. it is. I mean, that's how 
that's that's literally how I open um, my book, Permanent Distortion. I actually talk about um, Charles Ponzi. I, I read his um, his autobiography many, many times, the one that he wrote in jail um, after the scheme that he perpetuated in 1920. It, it is because there's more money that, that has to be created from an external source. And that external source um, are the larger central banks that, that can effectively create it out of, out of nowhere but um, in return for stuff. And, and, and that's the problem. It, it, you know how much can you ultimately create if the crisis is big enough, and and who is that crisis really hitting? Um, so it is it is starting to really hit uh, the American consumer and and basically citizens around the world and countries around the world um, all already. Right. So, so that that's a problem. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge problem. But the bigger problem is when the Ponzi scheme collapses. But in this case, they have something that Charles Ponzi didn't have, which is. He couldn't create imaginary money. So if the banks right, run into right. trouble, they're just going to go to the Federal Reserve and they're going to create more imaginary money. And they're going to go from 9 trillion to, you know, 12, 15, 20, yeah. I don't know. So I still don't get when the system collapses or can they just pile up endless imaginary money to keep every deposit scheme going forever and ever and ever. So so this is why I actually call it a permanent distortion because I, I think that where the system is right now um, and how it got there and what it's shown itself capable of doing, i.e. the Federal Reserve, central banks relative to banks, relative to buying their own government's bonds and relative to governments not being able to finance themselves. Um, that that I, I don't see that changing. Um, I see periods where it's not as necessary, where you're not going from nine to 12, maybe you're going from nine to 8.5 because some stuff matures or 8.4. But the point being that, 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 that the ability to go back up, I think remains intact. And so what's happening is the economy just tears around that. Um, so I, I and, and, and the markets get the benefit of, of money when it's created or, or when it's, it's promised that it, it may be created if necessary, um, whatever necessary means to a central bank. Or, or, or to Wall Street or, or to financial system. So I, I, I think it is permanent, which means it doesn't completely collapse. It just, we, we continue this, this mode of, of crisis create money, markets, financial assets go up way more than the economy. Things come back down a little bit, economy suffers by more. And, and, and you have these sort of mini crises followed by bubbles just, just permanently. Um, I, this is just this is just where where I think we're at. Amazing. All right. Uh, the book is Permanent Distortion: How Financial Markets Abandoned the Real Economy Forever. Uh, the story of the Federal Reserve is amazing. The story of the permanent distortion is amazing. Uh, Noe Prince, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us and letting us know all about it. Thank you so much.